welcome to the Unstoppable Freedom Podcast. This is Jimmy Page. Hey, welcome back for part two of our discussion about capitalism. I think you're going to find some really interesting tools to understand capitalism better and to make a compelling argument for why capitalism is inextricably woven into the fabric of America and it's the only moral system. Enjoy. I think that gets gets young people's attention when they actually link what they're, how hard they're working and the value of what they're getting. But one of the things that you mentioned was our schools, right? And, you know, kids are impressionable. So if you're, if you're handing over your kids into a government system that doesn't value capitalism, that doesn't value in many ways now competition or striving to be your very best, it, it really is kind of dumbing this whole thing down. Um, they are at risk for adopting an ideology that's inconsistent with human flourishing. And one of the things that I just saw that you did, uh, you did a little bit of a piece on the Colorado Education Association. You alluded to this. The largest teachers union in Colorado adopted what I would consider an explicitly anti-capitalism resolution. And you say it's a good thing. I know you don't think it's you don't totally think it's a good thing. But they certainly did expose their hand, right? And I want I want our listeners to know that there is an ideology that is completely exposed or uh, opposed to capitalism, and not only that, they are demonizing capitalism. They're they're saying that they're kind of redefining capitalism as the exploitation of everything from kids to land to labor and resources. How um, would you say? Well. I guess two things. One is, what do you think about that? And then two is, if you're a parent out here and you're hearing that our our school systems are kind of in direct opposition to most of our values, what do you do about it? Well, what I think about it, as I mentioned, is uh, in the in the piece that I wrote and, and when I've talked about it, I think it's really positive development because um, my view is that we should be true, truth seekers. You know, all mm-hmm. of us should be seeking, uh, you know, to understand the world we live in and the people we live with better, and and seek the truth. And so, um, the truth is, the the CEA, the Colorado Educational Association, and the national affiliate as well for the national organization, and and most of the educational establishment that we have, has been implicitly um, for decades, as I mentioned before, um, holding these views. And mm-hmm. whenever you can, whenever you can, uh, kind of obfuscate or, or kind of couch or sell your your views in a way that seems like it appeals to people, Americanism, so to speak, um, yeah. then it's not good. Uh, it doesn't work. Whenever you have that kind of compromise between um, the way people view the world, mm-hmm. sort of a mixture that way, then it works to the works to the the person who's hiding something behind their back. But whenever yeah. you have someone who says, no, let's be let's be clear about what we believe. And the CEA now coming out and saying, look, we're against capitalism. That's a that's a good development in the sense that now people will go, well, am I against capitalism? Am I for capitalism? What do I really well, what is this capitalism they're even talking about? Now, they're taking advantage of, again, decades of people having capitalism misidentified and, and vilified. And so they're mm-hmm. they're they're cashing in on that. You know, those seeds have been planted, and they're cashing in on that because there there are a lot of parents out there who might go, "Oh yeah, I guess the school system is saying we're against capitalism," and you know, I guess I am too, even though even though I'm maybe dependent upon it, or my livelihood is dependent upon it, or every 
value in the world. I mean, they won't say that explicitly, but now maybe they'll think about it. Um, yes. The, the task for us who are, who are defenders of freedom, we have to be more clear ourselves about, okay, what are we for? You know, what are we exactly for? And I, get, I think it's a really good development if we can actually um, be clear on both sides and say, what are you for? What are you against? You know, if we're both seeking truth, uh, <clears throat> so what should we do about it? I mean, the, the whole point is that we should be more clear about what the fundamental of capitalism is. It's not fundamentally you know, just profit seeking. It's not fundamentally ca uh, uh, competition. It's not, um, it's not state capitalism. It's not crony capitalism. Capitalism is that system that protects rights. And if we're, if we can be clear on that, you know, what we mean by protecting rights, what we mean by the proper role of government in that sense, what we mean by rights itself, then we'll, we'll win, we'll win the argument. And, and that's, that's like, okay, now we're turning the corner on this last hundred years of, of mis, uh, misidentification of the concepts. Yeah, I love that. And, you know, I think this this really does kind of feed into this idea that we've got to get better on messaging. You know, it, it's not you can't always be against everything. You have to have compelling reasons why you're for something. And I think that I honestly think, you know, one of the things I mentioned to you in the class is, boy, we need a we need a flashcard kind of approach to capitalism. The The top five things that capitalism is so that we can properly communicate it. So that it becomes compelling, like it makes people think, wow, I had no idea that's what capitalism is. I had no idea that's what capitalism results in. You've said it even on this podcast, you've said that the best way to defend capitalism is a moral defense. You know, what are we for? Why is this um, a, the only moral option? Um, what are we for? Yeah, we're, we're for people having a right to their own life. Uh, we're for self-ownership and self-government. Um, and self-ownership means that means people get to do what they want with their lives, even if we don't like it. You know, um, we you and I, Jimmy, might have a, a certain view about what moral behavior is um, and, and make an observation about another individual, you know, saying that person isn't being moral. Um, but as long as they're I mean, there's almost like a meta level or a higher level. I'm not sure it's the right way to say it, but it's it's another level of saying morality. Um, the most moral thing you can do is just allow people to be free and discover the truth for themselves. You can mm -hmm. try to persuade them, but but so I mean, yeah. the the key is understanding that each individual is an end to themselves, and they get to decide. Even if they're making the wrong decisions, by my definition, as long as they're not violating someone else's rights, you know. I, I have to allow them to live that way. Yeah. And one of the things, so a, as a, as a person of faith, as a, as kind of a, a man that walks with God, I'm a Christian. I have this idea that, you know, there is a benefit to living my life in such a way to having these opportunities to prosper and to profit, if you will, which has really taken on such a negative um, idea. But the idea is that the more money, the more resource, money's just a tool. Right. The more resources I have, the more good in in theory, in, in the hands of a moral man or a moral woman. Uh, boy, money is a very, very positive force for good. And I think in terms of generosity, you know, part of the reason that I want to prosper is so that I can be more generous so that I can help people in need. But what one of the distinction, one of the distinctions you've always made is that's voluntary. That's driven by your conscience. That's driven by your own moral code, so to speak. The government is acting not out of 
out of freedom and a moral code, they're, they're actually acting out of force when they take money from you in taxes and they give it to someone else. When government is limited, then I have more resources to be more generous, which leads me to the next thing is you've said this at the very beginning. Uh, capitalism has lifted more people out of poverty than any other system. And I would say that's a pretty good moral defense. Talk a little bit about generosity. Talk a little bit about the reason for prosperity for the benefit of others. Well, you know, that that, that whole issue that I bring up about capitalism lifting more people out of poverty um, as a moral defense, I don't think that's the primary thing that we should focus on. Uh, It's a fact. I mean, Mm -hmm. wherever you whenever you uh, allow people to be more free, you have you have this um, virtuous spiral upward in terms of both. As I said, both material wealth, but also spiritual well-being. But the the moral defense can't be about okay, it does lift people out of poverty. I mean, I pose this question a lot of times to people. What if it didn't? Let's say that you know you had a social system where, um, again, this is like a, a you know a thought experiment. But if you said you had a social system where the government you know owned lots of the property and you had a collectivist system, and it actually did lift people out of poverty as well. Maybe on the same uh, same scale as a, a more free system, does that mean it's as moral? And I yeah. say no. I mean, the, the the it's not primarily because it lifts people out of poverty. It's primarily because it allows people to be free. It allows each individual their own life, their own self ownership. It's a consequence that 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 so happens to be that we that lifts more people out of poverty and and has that virtuous spiral. But the key the key focus has to be on the individual, um, not mm-hmm. the collective and not lifting people out of poverty. It does do that. And that, that's an important thing for people to understand historically, um, because there's so many arguments that are misrepresentation of the history of freedom mm-hmm. and capitalism. So it's really crucial that people understand that. But it's 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 more important, in my view, that people understand the morality is based upon self-ownership, self-government. Yeah, I like that. I'm it's not, not sure I you answered know, your question, though. I, I wanted to make sure that point. Yeah. No, I think you did. I think you did because I think that uh, lifting lifting people out of poverty is a can be a byproduct, and it obviously is a byproduct. But the primary one is that that uh, government should not be in the business of forcing people to do things against their conscience and again and really in many ways against their their own good. And you know, I, that's I think the other that, thing I was going to mention. Yeah. You, you mentioned uh, you know government shouldn't be in the business of force, but in one sense. That's the only business that government should be and can be in, right? Because you know, if, if you don't have force, then you have voluntary, voluntary behavior. People trading with each other or, or saying, "No, well, I'm not going to trade with you today. Goodbye. I don't. I don't. I'm not going to feel. I'm not going to associate with you today. I have nothing to do with you today." Um, mm. Government is. This is something that George Washington said really succinctly. Government is force. That's all it is. That's all it can be. That's all it ever could be. Um, and the question is, what do you want? You know, what's the proper use of force? And again, yes. as you know, it, it sounds repetitive, but the proper use of force is only in defense of, mm. of rights, the only in protection of rights. Now, it becomes more complicated when you're talking about, OK, you know, uh, a specific police scenario. Right. What is the job of the cop in that scenario? Uh, what mm. is the job of the, of the military? The job of the military is, in a sense, the same thing. Protect our rights. Protect our rights as Americans. Protect our right to life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. But when does that 
military force get employed to do that? And that, that gets more complicated. But in principle, it is just that idea of government is force, and the only proper government is, is the one that uses force to protect rights. Mm, that's right. Well, that's interesting. It kind of it, you jogged a, a thought in my mind just about the current push for reparations. Right now, this, of course, there's a lot of history to this. There's a lot of, uh, you know, we have a, a rough history in this area of subjugating people and it. And no, every single one of us would condemn some parts of our history. The question now of reparations is, is taking money by force from one group of people and giving it to another. How does that, how do reparations fit into this whole idea of capitalism and economics and individual rights? Well, so you mentioned a couple of things there. Reparations as it's currently being uh, proposed is is a moral abomination. It's, it's, It's absolutely wrong to think you can, you know, you can hold people accountable who had nothing to do with slavery whatsoever. You can hold those yeah. people accountable and give them redistribute their property to people who were never slaves in the first place. I mean, that's that's just a, a moral abomination. You mentioned yeah. that, you know, we have a history and I hope you mean that really broadly. Uh, yeah. People oftentimes think we Americans have this history of subjugating other people. But we is much broader than that. All of human history has that history. Um, yes. Americans made it a problem. Uh, and they, you know, and certainly there, that tradition was abhorrent uh, mm. all around the world as it was in America. But America's Americans, the only one who who actually said, "No, we really have a problem. We have to solve." Um, yes. And you know, so, the, so the the idea of slavery is as old as mankind. I mean, and and it isn't necessarily always associated with race. I mean, it is in some places, and it certainly was in the American South and the the whole. The whole slavery history in the U.S. was based on subjugating black people. But the the genesis of that was black people, oftentimes African-Americans selling other African-Americans to be shipped over to, you know, to work plantations in North America. And the other fact that people don't know, I mean, this doesn't this doesn't justify anything. Slavery itself should always and everywhere be uh, condemned, morally condemned and eradicated whenever it can be. Um, but there were there were free black people, free African Americans in the United States at that time, who owned black slaves themselves. Um, mm-hmm. Slavery has been with us since since the beginning of time, and it, it's only once you said, "Wait, no, every individual," and then mm-hmm. anthropologically understanding what we mean by that, every person, whether they're black, white, male, female, male, whatever their gender is, whatever their race is, whatever their religion is. They're an individual. They're a precious individual, and they have a right to their own life. And it's morally wrong to to subjugate them. So that's mm-hmm. you know that's sort of a my view, or I think the proper role or proper view of of racism from a capitalist standpoint. Capitalism is the the system that actually ended up helping to eradicate racism. Now, when you go back to the the whole idea of reparations, if you can, if there were a way, you could say, okay, we can identify specifically people who are wronged and specifically people who are who were uh, benefited from this, but we're talking about hundreds of years now. Um, it's impossible to do that. And it, it, all you would do is perpetrate a, a greater injustice to have the kind of reparations that uh, California and maybe San Francisco and places like that are, are contemplating. It, it's just, it, it's, yeah. it's really, it would be really destructive and take us backwards, not forward. 
Yeah. And I think it does continue to create more division between race, unnecessary division between us. And I think that's part of to be honest, it's part of the propaganda machine, right? That's part of the we're in an election cycle right now. And um, there is an awakening of many people to see that our political parties are in many ways not working for us anymore. And so now this whole campaign of division again, where, you know, it's part of the process. It feels like it's part of the process every two to four years. Um, So let's shift gears just a little bit um, back to kind of some basic economic things. Why are why are price controls like rent controls, caps on drug prices, minimum wage? Why are these things a bad idea and what negative, sometimes unintended consequences do they have? Well, those kinds of controls, I mean, there's two parts to it. One is practically they're, they're, they are um, a real interrupter or uh, a, um, you know, they interrupt the whole flow of information. Prices are basically a conduit of information and values. Uh, mm-hmm. when, when I say, you know, this car is worth this price to me, it's saying to the person who's a producer of a car and a distributor of a car and lots of other people in the supply chain, this is what matters to me. I'm willing to pay this much for it. It's, it's a conveyance of my values. Mm-hmm. And if you're using force, which is what a price control would be, I mean, a price control by a government says, look, you can't charge that much for that car. Um, it's basically uh, wiping out my mind and the mind of the car seller. You know, mm-hmm. we can't come together uh, and and use our values to come together as an agreement in a win-win situation. We have somebody who's interfering with that, the, our value system. And it, ca- it, it causes all kinds of distortions in the marketplace, misallocations of capital. Uh, that's the, the practical argument. Um, it doesn't work because you're, you're interfering with people's values. Uh, and what they, what they care about. The moral is that you know you're using force to to substitute some bureaucrat's judgment or some bureaucrat who says he speaks for the collective good, their judgment for the the person who has the property, you know the person who actually has the dollars to buy the car and the person who has the car to sell the, to the, for the dollars. Mm-hmm. So you're interrupting that that value exchange, and you end up with uh, you know misallocations of capital and, and ultimately destruction of wealth. I mean. You end if whenever you have wealth that gets misapplied um, and mistraded and 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 values get mixed up, you, you end up having less wealth because it gets destroyed over time. Yeah, and I was thinking in terms of the unintended consequences, right? I I know as a business owner, and I know a lot of people that own their own businesses. This idea of the minimum wage um, and the negative consequences of that, quote unquote, the negative unintended consequences are generally that people get less hours. Uh, we have un- extended unemployment because businesses can't afford the labor anymore. Or we have increases in prices that the customer is not willing to pay. And those those costs always get passed on to the customer. So it's kind of like a big balloon. You squeeze one end of the balloon, the other balloon gets, the other end gets bigger. Um, that's kind of what these controls, these artificial controls do. And they have all kinds of unintended consequences um, from the very beginning, you've talked about individual rights and property ownership, and I think it's such a foundational element of capitalism and our the American way. The World Economic Forum, they are pushing what I would consider a globalist agenda through the United Nations. Interestingly enough, the United Nations is just one big global globalist tool. And one of their Agenda 2030 goals 
is, quote, that you'll own nothing and you'll be happy. Why is this collectivist movement so destructive to human flourishing? And what do we do about it? Well, um, there's a lot to say about that. I mean, I, I'm in favor of globalization. Um, I'm not in favor of uh, a globalist kind of government or or that kind of thing. I mean, we don't have anywhere close to rational government in my state and county, let alone my federal government, let alone on a worldwide basis. Um, but I am in favor of globalization in the sense of uh, more freedom to trade with more individuals. Uh, you know, there's all kinds of, I mean, we've got 8 billion people on this planet, and that means 8 billion create, mm -hmm. potentially creative, uh, benevolent minds that offer value to me. And so I think it's really crucial that we, we distinguish between free trade amongst people and nations all over the world uh, versus this, this push, like you're saying, uh, and it is a Marxist push to say, let's 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 us be the people who help you figure out that you don't need any property and we're going to make it so you're going to be happier. It's a con. Right. I mean, right. Um, and the, what should we do about it? I mean, uh, the easy, the young people, as you mentioned before, the most susceptible to this kind of argument, at least in, a, in, a, in an innocent way. There are people out there who are you know, pushing this globalist agenda from the World Economic Forum who are who are really diabolical and, and want to have more control over people. But there are young people who advocate for themselves. And I think mm -hmm. in many ways, innocence. Uh, but the, the, the way you convince them is just to, to address their mind honestly and say, you know, okay, how about if I take your stuff? You know, uh, you find out what they value. You know, a lot, a lot of times people really are attached to their phones or their clothes as young people. You know, I'm going to take your, I'm going to take your clothes. Uh, you don't need, you don't need that property. You'll be happier without it. Very quickly, you're going to find that people are attached in some way or another uh, and have a great a great appreciation for their property. And, and yes. you, you want to make the further case is that, you know, if you're talking about uh, at an extreme level, giving up your property, that means giving up your mind and your body uh, and, and allowing some collectivist force, you know, whether it's a World Economic Forum or, or the UN or, or, or even our own federal government to decide what's best for you in terms of even your, your own body and mind, how you work you know, what you're, you know, do you get to choose your career or should the world economic, economic forum decide, okay, this is what you're best at. And look, you're going to be happier without having any control over your own right. vocation or who you marry or whatever it might be. Young people won't, won't fall for that. I mean, that that's right. The problem is that, that, that there is that ideology that is, um, infecting and affecting many of our leaders, even people who are, who are, you know, nominally for markets, uh, they're falling for some of that as saying, you know, this is the way to solve some of these bigger problems that we have versus the real solution, having more, more uh, innovation and more individual freedom. Yeah. And I have a lot of friends in countries that are socialist, some that are communistic, some, uh, all of which are collectivist. And they will tell you that nothing does more damage to a human being than uh, when things are imposed upon them, when they don't have choices about the jobs that they're going to have, when there's zero incentive for them to work harder because there's no reward. Um, it is a plague. And then, you know, we've talked a lot about this, this idea that homeownership, the ownership of property actually leads to more prosperity more generational wealth than just about anything else. So, and, and our kids are getting this because they're right now in a situation where they can't in many ways afford to buy property. 
and they're realizing they're paying rent and getting no um, accumulation of wealth from that property, they're starting to say, hey, wait a minute, this doesn't make any sense. I don't like it at all. And that's good news, I think. You know, when when this collectivist stuff starts to happen to people and they experience it, oftentimes they don't like it very much. One of those areas is taxation. You know, I was, boy, I've spent a lot of time thinking about how much tax we actually pay. We're taxed when we make money. We're taxed when we spend it. We're taxed when we invest it, when we save it, when we grow it. And we're even taxed when we die. I mean, it, it is diabolical. I think back to the patriots who dumped tea into the harbor because of a tax, a little itty bitty tax on tea. And now we're talking about, in some estimations, we're being taxed up to 50% of our real income. Th- that should concern us, shouldn't it? And, and is there a pathway out of this exorbitant taxation? Well, the only pathway out that I see is that people have a, you know, you have a critical mass of people who will reject taxation as such as force is um, people, people coming to the idea that, no, there is no moral tax. Now, that's a difficult thing to say, well, we have it, you know, we're putting up with it all over the place. And, you know, you mentioned before, you know, a young person getting their first paycheck and, and, seeing that happen and going, you know, this isn't right. I don't like it. But very quickly, you know, just going, well, I got to get along to play along. This is what, this is the society I'm born in and this is how it works. And, and, and then further mm-hmm. buying the error of saying, well, we got to have government, you know, I can't, I can't live in a free society without, you know, military and aircraft carriers and police forces and teachers and, and, you know, the EPA protecting me and all this kind of stuff. So they buy into that, you know, I got to pay for this. Somebody's got to pay for it. So I have to pay for it. And I and it and I wouldn't do it by voluntary. I wouldn't do it voluntarily. So they've got to forcibly extract it from me. So you have to dig down and say, well, would you not pay for uh, things that are valuable? Uh, you know, your own protection, your own rights protection. Would you pay for a government that was in its proper role? Um, that's one thing is that, that you know to have people think more clearly about that. But they've got to reject at its root the idea of force that you know yeah. forcing. People to do things against their better judgment uh, is a good thing. You know, th- that's yeah. just a moral precept we have to fight. It's a long mm. battle, but it, it can be won. Um, you know, the, the founders themselves were winning it. They didn't have, uh, in my view, quite enough of a philosophical foundation to really, really completely eradicate the idea of force from human relationships. But mm. they certainly, you know, did better than anybody else. And we have to build upon that yep. foundation. We have to, we have to rediscover that whole idea of self-ownership, meaning that, you know, a government's job isn't to take money from you or take your property. Um, it's at that level that the battle has to be won. And yep. there, there's a further thing of saying, okay, how do we do this on a practical level with all the, the things that we have that are supported by tax dollars today? How would they, you know, we have to show a, a, a grander vision of how, if they really are valuable and, and some of what our government does, does provide value, um, it would be provided even better in a marketplace. I mean, the, the, the classic example is, you know, postal service. I mean, we still have a postal service, you know, it's, it's a legacy thing. But, you know, if, if you ask someone, you know, if you really needed your mail delivered or your postal service done correctly, would you rather have it done by the U.S. Post Office or would you rather have it done by FedEx? Most people would say, I want the private company to get my stuff when I need it, right? Yes. Yeah. And I can't tell you how many times our mail system has has failed to deliver 
things that I've sent or were expecting in the mail. I mean, I can't even tell you, but I can count on less than two fingers the amount of times I don't get it from those private companies that make their living on, you know, on reliability. Yeah. And, and every time you actually point examples like that out, anyone who's honest will say, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, this is a this is a more practically a more effective system for delivering value. But they still have that hang up of saying, yeah, but we we owe it to each other. We have to have we right. have to have this force because we have to have this collect, you know, this collective good. Um, yeah. The whole idea of collective good is is a really confusing concept for people. And and um and it's what you know oftentimes destroys uh, a, a person's ability to think clearly about it. Yeah, and I think this force, you know, of, of taking money, especially by taxes. I mean, you think about it. We've got property taxes. We've got we've got tax on gas here in Colorado. Uh, it's over twenty five cents per gallon. So when you add that up, you're like, wait a minute, that's a lot of money. When I go to and to and from the airport, I'm paying tolls on those roadways. Those are taxes. Um, there are fees on everything. I love the way our government gets around taxes by calling things fees. Uh, fees get attached to just about everything now. I think part of that is we we need to elect people that believe in lower a, a, a more limited role of government, less taxation, so that we can roll back some of this stuff. But Mike, as we conclude, um, you know, what are some resources that you recommend to parents and families? We've got a lot of people uh, that are listening that want to be able to communicate the benefits of capitalism in a simple and easy to understand way. I mean, I read Atlas Shrugged. That is a, that book is, I don't even know, a thousand pages. Um, It is compelling. Most families probably aren't going to read that. Do you have any other kind of simplified resources that you would recommend to people? Well, one resource is to listen to you more often, right? I think, I think uh, people should tune into the to the uh, both entertainment and inform- information that you're providing, Jimmy. And I, and I would say as well, they should listen to our Defenders of Capitalism podcast, My Capital Idea. Um, there's a lot of really good resources. Um, uh, you know, you mentioned Atlas Shrugged and Ayn Rand. She wrote lots of nonfiction that people should read that isn't nearly as as long or daunting as reading Atlas Shrugged. There's, there's in a sense, a boiled down version of Atlas Shrugged that's nonfiction. It doesn't have the story. And sometimes we argue about whether we should actually have that. I mean, stories are compelling, and that's oftentimes what makes Atlas Shrugged so life-changing yes. for many people is because they they see it as, you know, in reality, or at least in a in a, a story setting, they, they can see the actual implications. But there's a book called uh, Capitalism, the Unknown Ideal by Ayn Rand, which I would recommend. And, there, and there's lots of other nonfiction that she wrote. There's other great uh, economists um, and resources in in the field, um, certainly the foundation for economic education is mostly a good for, a force for good. Uh, Cato Institute. There's a lot of people out there who are who are fighting for freedom, and on a political yeah. level, saying here's the principle we should be, and and at root have that principle of non-initiation of force and the proper role of government being to protect rights. Um, there's a number of political institutions, but I would say. The biggest thing I would recommend people do is understand their founding better. I mean, you know, the American founders uh, had an incredible achievement and it's underappreciated today. And unfortunately, it's not taught well in schools. So people have to take it upon themselves to really rediscover that achievement of what the founders did. I mean, they should read the Federalist Papers. They should read the the founding documents, the Declaration and the Constitution and the whole context. And there's a really good book uh, by a guy named Brad Thompson I would recommend um, uh, understand the American mind um, at the time of the revolution. He basically goes back, you know, 10 to 15 years 
20 years even before 1776, and shows the, the sort of seeds that were being planted there, the genesis of some of the ideas of what came together in 1776, how they came to these conclusions of, no, mm-hmm. we don't, we don't only want to reject England, but we want to have a positive understanding, a positive uh, a role for government of saying, here's, here's what a, a proper government does. So there's a lot of great resources out there. I'm, I know I'm rambling about it. I, I uh, p- could probably come up with even a better list. Well, it's a, that's excellent. And we'll put all those resources in the notes for the podcast as well. But Mike, I wanted to thank you. Uh, I mean, your podcast is exceptional. The Capital Idea, it's thank absolutely you. exceptional. We'll put a link to that in our notes as well. Thank you for investing so much in leaders within Colorado and leaders really around the nation to understand our founding principles, to understand capitalism in a way that's compelling so that we can make the argument. I appreciate your time today, my friend. God bless you. Jimmy, Jimmy, I really appreciate the opportunity. I appreciate the good work that you're doing. Thank you so much. 